Um, well, good morning. We're going to begin um, this morning in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. And we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, we'll begin looking at the life of, life of Joseph. It won't be a complete study this morning on his life. Uh, we will begin and then pick up next week. Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts this morning as we look at your word together. As we study the Bible, Lord, we pray that you would uh, fill our minds and hearts, that we would understand and behold the truth of the scriptures that you have given us. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have given them to us and that they are for us life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at um, the life of Jacob uh, briefly. We talked about Jacob and uh, two wives, Rachel and Leah, Leah and Rachel. And today we're going to move forward in the book of Genesis to chapter 37. And Instead of reading the entire thing, I wanted to talk through a little bit of the narrative of this passage. Um, this is the, the chapter about Joseph's dreams and uh, how he, as a young man, shared them with his brothers and with his dad. And uh, they were not all too excited to hear about his gift of dreams. And some of the, the themes that we're going to talk about today uh, relate to faith and inspiration Hope in the Lord, hatred and ungodliness, earthly wisdom and God's sovereignty. And it's, I think, important to remember that the stories in the Old Testament are not filled with characters that we should emulate. Uh, they tell the true story of life in a fallen world, uh, the same world that you and I live in, with people with the same nature as ours, who don't uh, always make the right decisions and don't choose uh, the right things, don't follow and honor the Lord. And I think it's helpful to remember that God is not confined to what is expected or culturally required. We saw that last week uh, with Rachel and Leah and the life of Jacob and how God worked in their lives. But even these stories show us uh, the glory of God and his sovereign, glorious purpose. And I do want you to keep your finger there in Genesis 37 for a moment. And I want to read a couple verses that we read last week. And I want to talk about this promise that God made uh, to Jacob. It's significant because it overlaps into the story we're looking at today. So Genesis uh, chapter 28, I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. It says, And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east to the north and to the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So this was the promise that God made to Jacob while he was on the way to go to the land where his uncle lived, his uncle Laban. And uh, Jacob was struck at the presence of the Lord. And he didn't know that God was there, that God would speak to him. 
And so he, he moves on. And we get now to, to the story of Joseph and his dreams. He was a young man. And I want to look at his family dynamics for just a moment. Because this plays into each of our lives. The family that you were born into, the family that you married into, all of this has impact on your life and how, how you perceive reality, how you think about life, what it means to follow God. It is very much impacted by the family that you live in. Joseph's family dynamics were significant for him just as they are for you. He was young and full of himself in verse 2. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe it happens for you even now. He was his father's favorite. And it's clear in verse 3 that he was, he was Jacob's favorite. And isn't it interesting that Jacob, of all people, knew what this kind of dynamic could do to a family. Of all people, he knew what it meant to be a favorite and what kind of burden that would cause to be set on the family's shoulders. What it would do to the person, what it would do to the others. And we see... Again, related to his family dynamics, that his brothers hated him. They hated him for it. He paraded his gift, this gift that God had given him, he paraded it like it was something that he had grown or something that he had caused to be created in himself. They despised him. They envied him. And they hated even the words that he used to talk about his gift. He said, I'm, I have this gift of dreams. God has blessed me with it. Look at the coat that I'm wearing. And it was a constant visible reminder that they didn't like this young, arrogant young man. So I want to ask you this morning to think about your own family dynamics. Think about the dynamic of the home that you grew up in, the one that you live in now. Um, how does it impact your life? How does it impact your faith? Does how your siblings are treated or how uh, you were treated as a young person, how does it impact the way that you view reality and think about how God loves you or loves his people or how the church grows or doesn't grow i think all of these things are related and connected none of these things are unto themselves islands Uh, they are all significant and weighty uh, for how you view reality i mentioned a couple weeks ago a book and i i want to speak to it uh just very briefly and and just by by way of a, a connection here so the book is called the rise and triumph of the modern self by carl s truman Uh, from Grove City College, I would highly recommend that you read it. And not read it for the sake of getting from cover to cover, but read it and and see how you can see yourself viewing the culture that you live in, how you think about yourself, how you see your own identity in Christ, um, how you see the church, and how you see reality and life. Um, These are are significant topics, so there's no way I could go into them and do them justice now. But there are two theories in the book, uh, two theories about reality and life that I wanted to mention. One is that all of us, uh, no matter who we are, we derive our identity and sense of self from something outside of ourself. uh, So that our identity is set and fixed, uh, that it is given to us. And as believers, who would we say gives us that identity? Anybody. God gives it to us. There is also another theory that this identity and sense of self and who we are and who we were created to be is something that is not outside of us, but something internal in each of us. And so it is left to you and to me and to our children and to their children after them to set and define who they are, to determine value and worth 
and it's on their shoulders and our shoulders to do it. Uh, Can we talk for just a minute about how that is either a benefit or a weight to people? And by weight, I mean like a a millstone around their neck. How is it a benefit or a, a weight to have to determine your own identity? If it is not something that comes from outside of you, from God the Creator... What are some benefits to that? Well, I think that comes from first denying that there is God. So, okay. Um, I guess, the, you know, so then everything's a burden, right? So Tim said, first you have to deny that there is a God. And I think that's a great, that is a great place and probably the place to start. And so because you deny that there is God, everything about that is a burden. Does anybody agree with Tim? I think that's the, the right place to start. But he's saying that because of that, everything about setting your identity is now a burden. It is not a blessing. But let me just ask for a moment... And anybody, feel free to respond here because this is, I think this is exactly where, where we are as a culture. This is where our young people are growing up. If that's true, if it is a burden, and if we have to deny, in order to do this, we have to deny that God exists at all, then why does there seem to be such a parade of freedom in our culture in this? That I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to define who I am. And if I don't like who I am, I can remake that. I can redo that. So if, if that's true, then why is, it so, why is it so celebrated? And why would there need to be such an increased uh, sense and, and need for therapeutic help? If that's true, that it's a burden that's lifted... That are like our culture tells us. You can't tell me how to live. I can't tell you how to live. There's no God who has any authority. If that's true freedom, then why the such a need and significant increase for therapeutic help? It's not. It's not freedom. Why can't we be that anchor? Oh, sorry, Pam. Your way and I want my way, the rest of these people and they want their way all the time. And they're free 
So one of the one of the philosophies of our day is that the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, which is in itself an absolute statement, right? And not not to be semantic at all, but that's true. To say there are no absolutes, there is no God in heaven who has a t- set of ten commandments that you and I must obey and follow. And if we don't, we don't break the commandments. We actually break ourselves over them, right? God's law is pure and right and true and righteous and holy. We don't break God's law. We break ourselves over it over and over again. We break who we are. Our sense of identity is broken in that. Um, but what Pam is saying, if there, if there is no absolute, there is no foundation. And so if that's true, then what is the, how is this an absolute then um, that everybody can determine their own identity? How is that an absolute? It is a house of cards that crumbles and falls, right? It does not stand. Uh, it's not possible. And look at this. Look at this passage and what we talked about last week. And they do. They do go together. And even if you weren't here last week, that's okay. The point is that Jacob ran from the life that he had inflicted because of his own sin. He ran from home. His mom said, "Look, your brother wants to kill you. He is comforting his own soul with the thought of killing you when Isaac dies." You need to leave or you're going to die too. And by the way, everybody knows, if you know your Old Testament, book of Genesis, that Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. So it's clear that favoritism in, in that family was not a helpful thing. It was not a good thing. So he leaves and runs and goes to the land where his uncle lives. And he's hoping to find true love and a new identity, people who don't know his past sins and aren't able to call him out on it. They're not going to know the sinful inclinations of his heart. And he can go and recreate himself. Right? He's a member of God's covenant family. He's there. There are certain things that people are going to assume about him. But just leaving home and going to a new place, unfortunately, as we see in the Bible, it does not, it does not allow you to do what our culture says it will do. You cannot remake who you are. Because what goes with you when you go? You. You go. The things that you struggle with, your sinful nature, the things that are little ticks for you and, and personal weaknesses and sinful, sinful desires, they all follow with you. Even if you didn't put them in the U-Haul, they climb right in on their own and they go along with you. So you can put, new, you can put a new facade on it, you can put a new dress or a new tie or a new shirt, but those things don't change what's going on inside. So here's Jacob. He has a family. Now here's Joseph, the son, and these dynamics that started way back when he supplanted his brother are now wreaking havoc in his own family. Now he has his own children. Here's Joseph, this young man who he should be leading in humility and saying, son, I do love you. I care for you. But here's this gift that obviously God has given you. What did Jacob say when he was there at the land of Bethel? He said, I had no idea that God was here. And he fell on his face and he set up rocks and he worshipped the living God while he was there. That, that was a monumental time in his life, not to use the VBS phrase, but it was a monumental time in his life. It should have been something that anchored him. It should have anchored him because that was God showing up, right? It wasn't anything he was able to manufacture on his own. God did that. God spoke to him and he fell on his face. 
So you remember this. Uh, there are two dreams that Joseph shared. He had a, in verses 5 through 8 in, in chapter 37. He had a, a dream of the sheaves bowing down to him. Him alone. Then the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to him in verses 9 through 11. And we know in the Old Testament the significance of dreams in the Bible. They are very significant because God, the people believed, was speaking through them. And there was always understanding that if a dream happened twice, the same theme or the same idea, that there was confirmation that that dream was from God and not something that maybe uh, a rough bean burrito you'd had the night before and it just messed with you as you slept. This was true. God was speaking to you. So what is God communicating here in this passage? And this is significant throughout the Old Testament. It's significant in the book of Ruth that we're studying. I think at least three things that God is communicating. He's communicating, number one, the reversal of the role of the younger brother by his order. It was by his order that this was happening. Joseph was the younger brother. He had one younger brother than him, right? What was his name? Benjamin, and he would play a significant part in this story of the deliverance of God's people through a time of significant famine. But he also is communicating his sovereignty over the events of people's lives, over everything that happens, even in the midst of our choices. What we say we believe is that God is in control of those and able to move in and around those. Um, That's why at the end of the, the story, as Joseph is confronting his brothers, And he's speaking to them and they know who he is there in the palace in Egypt. He tells them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You meant to do me harm. You hated me. You wanted me dead. It was better for me to be dead than to be alive. I'm your brother. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to save this many people. And lastly, what is God communicating through dreams in this passage? It's that the supremacy of his power and choice are above all things. Now, why does that fly in the face of the culture that we live in? Why to speak of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God? Why is that so significant that his power and his choice are supreme above everything? Why is that? And you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to answer it. Did God really say the question the serpent asked? What else? We want life on our own terms. We'd rather not have God's hand on our life at all. Because if he does, and if he is true and real, if he exists, and he is God Almighty, the one who has supreme power and choice in my life, then what does that mean that I owe him? My life. And if there's anything that Americans don't like in one sense or another, it's being indebted to someone else. And we agree with the statement, the borrower is slave to the lender. We believe that. But isn't it true that we do mortgage out certain parts of our life? We're okay with paying a debt for certain parts of our identity. What do I mean by that? I mean, we're okay to mortgage out part of what people think about us or how they look at us based on how we live or how we act, right? I'm willing to pay that debt as long as I'm getting from you what I want. I'm willing to 
to do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary for you to think well of me. I've mortgaged it out to you. I'm not living as unto the Lord if I'm a slave to that. The borrower is slave to the lender. If I'm looking to you for my identity, then everything that I do or everything that I don't do, every time I let you down or every time I do something that is a true mistake because I'm a fallen human being, if my identity is wrapped up in what you think, then I am a slave to however you respond to that. Is that true? It is. That is absolutely true. And what does the Bible say about our relationship with other people that way? Number one, it says, oh man, nothing but to love him. Right? I I don't owe you certain acts or services in order for you to have a good opinion of me. Uh, but I think it's true in our culture that we, we've sold the idea that the only way that you and I can establish an identity with one another is if we have an established currency the, of a payment and something that's earned back because of that payment, right? I think that's true. At least in our culture, I think it's true. And I think you see that in the way that it's easy to manipulate people uh, by certain things. Power, money, position, um, prestige, being able to be in the spotlight, being thought well of, um, maybe being perceived as being competent, um, able to get through situations. I think all of those things are things that we more, we can mortgage out our identity to other people. And we're okay making payments as long as we get a return on that payment. Here in this passage, the next thing that I wanted to talk through is Joseph's demise. Uh, Jacob sends him out to his brothers in verse 12 to 14. It's interesting that you would send your beloved son out to a group of people that don't like him, but he does it on purpose. He sends him out there. Joseph finds his brothers in the land of Dothan, and the brothers have some schemes as soon as he's out there. They can see him coming far off, and in verse 20, they say, let's kill him. And then they decide better of that. No, let's not do that. Let's not be hasty. Let's just throw him in this pit. We'll, we'll make life difficult for him right now. Then in verse 23, they say, well, we can humiliate him. We can make him uh, finally be quiet, never to speak again. We'll just humiliate him. And then by chance, here comes some traitors. Well, hey, this is deliverance for us. We will just sell him off. This is okay. Uh, so they do in verse 27. And what do we see in verse 25? And this is significant. And I I want to spend probably the rest of our time talking about this. Um, In verse 25, we see that sinfulness poisons the heart of a person. Sinfulness poisons the heart of a person and calluses their sense of mercy. Now, is that an absolute in the Bible? That sinfulness... Poisons your heart and calluses your sense of mercy. Is that an absolute in the Bible? Or is there anyone who's immune to that? I see some heads looking down, nodding no. I don't think anybody is immune to that. I think sinfulness is far more powerful than we believe it to be. We believe it's something that we can contain, something that we can control, and even put some makeup on and make it look a little better. We can hide it like a blemish. I don't have to let you see my sinfulness. It's okay that you know it's there, or maybe there's a cover-up, but I don't have to let you see how bad it is. But what it's doing on the inside of you is decaying and deadening 
in you what was meant to be alive and flourishing in Christ. And I think the brothers here didn't account for how wicked their sin truly was in verse 25. And then we see in verse 36, so all the way at the end of the chapter, and this is a very quick review of Genesis 37, that Joseph is sold again. So it was nothing for these folks. They sold and traded goods like it was anything else. So why would Joseph be any different? They're just selling him like like a chicken or a cow that they had pulled along and got along to town. It was no big deal. They were moving him along like any other freight they had. They didn't want to afford to keep feeding him or carrying him along, so let's just sell him off. That's fine. And so the brothers have offloaded this one that they hated. And so they fabricate a story. We know they go back and lie to their to their dad. They don't tell him the truth. But I want to ask you in the last minutes that we have this morning, how are we to think about this story and is there anything redeeming in it at all? And remember I told you at the beginning that the Bible is filled with true stories of real life. They're not necess- it's not necessarily filled with characters that you should say, well, I look at this story, I read about Joseph and his brothers, and who should I emulate here? It, the Bible is not meant to be that always. Uh, you're not meant to find the hero or the villain. You're reading real life. This is what happens in the life of God's people. So how are we to think about this story? Is there anything redeeming in it? I want to give you four things, but I hope that we can uh, talk through these just a little bit. The first is the blessing and weight that God places on a family. The blessing and weight that God places on a family. The family unit we see in this, in this story is significant. It, is, it holds a preeminent place in God's story for His people. The family that you live in. Uh, can anybody say, I know for a fact that I was born into this family and it was a mistake? No. And what a blessing it is to be part of a family. And how much more to be part of a church family. Committed to one another, to having taken covenant vows to one another. To say before the Lord that I will be faithful here uh, to this family. And I will treat them like family, like blood family. Right? So we take vows to that. It's significant. The blessing and weight that God places on family. But then I want to talk about this, and I know it flies in the face of what we have been talking about, that our culture tells us about who we are and how we are defined as a people. But I think this is significant, and it's redeeming in this story. Beware the undercurrent of faithless thoughts that linger in our minds during difficulty. How do you deal with your doubts? And I'm hoping we can talk about this for a few minutes. What do you do in moments of significant doubt? And I don't mean, well, I, I, I doubt I'll find my keys or I doubt I'll, I'll be able to take a lunch break today. I mean, um, I doubt that we're all going to be able to pay the mortgage this month. Or I doubt that uh, my child is going to really follow the Lord. I'm looking at their life. I doubt they're going to make it. Where do you go with this undercurrent of of faithless thoughts that linger in your mind in times of great difficulty. I doubt our marriage is going to make it. I doubt we're going to be able to get through whatever it is. Where do you go with those?
every way you can to make it work for you. You have to go to God's Word. Where are some other places we go? If we don't go there, where do we go? Manipulation. Go to friends. Talk. Yep. Counseling. Yep. Go to counseling. I think in in some places of despair, people run to substances, food or drink or some sort of drug. Because I cannot deal with what I am struggling with. It is not possible to get out from under this. And what is it that you're saying when you do that? You're admitting something in your heart. And, I, and maybe it's not very obvious and maybe I'm not saying it very well. But you're admitting something in your heart when you do that. When you run to something else, you are admitting that this is out of your control. But then I'm going to back up and say, if that's true, then why is it that we can say that there in a circumstance, but we cannot say it as the basic rudimentary principle of life, that who we say we are is defined by us? If I can do that, why can't I control this? And if that's not the logical conclusion, and if I'm, if I'm setting up a straw man, then I, I want to do better and, and make the argument better. But if, that's, if what I'm saying is true and logical and right, then we have to look at our doubts and say, I am not thinking like a believer, like someone who belongs to the living God. But there's also a, another part of this kind of thinking that I think you have to root out. And it is that... Orphans think that way. If you're a child of the living God, you belong to your heavenly Father. And it's orphan-like thinking that would lead you to say, the only thing that I can do is something therapeutic for myself because I can't do anything about the reality of the life that I'm living. The only option I have, the only option I have is to run to a substance or to a friend or to counseling. And all of those things, certainly there are varying degrees of whether those things are good or not. But ultimately, no, no amount of drink or drugs or the lifestyle that you hope you could lead or spending money or food or people, all of those things, there is no amount of them to salve your soul. It's not possible. You are not an orphan in this world. You belong to the living God. Your heavenly Father is caring for you. And so I, I agree with Karen. I think the first thing we must do is run to the Lord. And so as you deal with, and we all do, everybody could raise their hands and say there's something that I struggle with that's significant in my heart where I lack faith. And I don't believe that God will show up, that He will pull me through. I'm on my own. If I don't figure it out, it's going to flop. There are things that we believe that way. And if we don't see those for what they are and ask for God's grace, we will walk with them and carry them. And they are like a lens. You will look at all of life through that. And you may be able to look good in other areas of your life, but that you won't let anyone near. And you won't let the Lord touch it. Because it's yours to bear. I have to carry this. And if I don't do it, it will fall. 
So that's number two. I think that one is very significant and weighty for each of us. Number three, how do we think about this story? Is there anything that's redeeming in this? Embrace the sovereign rule of God in your life and cry out for faith when life is uncertain. And how many of you had uncertain moments in the last week? My goodness, only every day, multiple times a day. And the the moment that things seem out of control, you and I should be praising God. Great is thy faithfulness. You should be singing the gospel of that song to your soul. Great is his faithfulness to me. He is going to carry me. He's the reason I am where I am. And you have to acknowledge that. If we're saying as believers that we have to root out the idea that we make our own identity, that we do it ourselves, then when you are there, you have to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. I didn't bring myself here. And it's not on my shoulders or in my hands to carry it. He is carrying me. You have to believe that in your soul. And if you don't, you will be crushed under the weight of life's disappointments. And out of your own unable strength to perform. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to carry yourself. And when you fail, it will crush you. Because you're carrying it yourself. Lastly, and I think this is an encouragement for all of us. Deal ruthlessly with the sin in your own heart and in your personal relationships. Now, number one, that's a battle you fight every day, right? Deal ruthlessly with the sin in your own heart. So that means as believers, we should be living a lifestyle of repentance before the Lord. This would be an interesting conversation starter. Maybe in a small group it would be beneficial or just one or two other people. But just ask, what are you repenting of recently? What are you repenting of? And and if that's too bold of a question, then think about that yourself. What am I repenting of? And you say, well, I repented. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, what are you repenting of? What is it that you are bringing to the Lord and saying, this is, this is too significant for me to not bring to you? And then what about in personal relationships? What are you asking forgiveness for? What are you seeking forgiveness for in relationships with others? Or what is it that you are needing to humbly address in the lives of other people? You're living with sinful people. It's going to happen. That's a regular part of healthy relationship. I'm confessing my sin. Asking forgiveness. Or by God's grace and in humility. I'm coming to you and talking to you about something. That looks like sin in your life. Humbly. Not not coming with a trumpet and, and cymbals and a drum. And just banging the drum. But. Before the Lord, in honesty and humility, it looks like to me this has your heart. And I'm concerned and I love you. Not because I want you to walk a straight line and tow it, but because I do love you and care for you. And it looks like this is a snare that the devil wants to use to sideline you in the kingdom of God. And he wants your affections. And in this area, if I'm right, it looks like he has you. Or at least he's getting a grip. Do we have the humility to hear that from one another? Boy, that's difficult. And it takes a lot of grace to be able to go and say that. But I tell you what, if, if you love me and you saw that in my life, I would expect that you would come tell me. 
Not because you want to, to have me under your thumb or look, I, now I can feel better. Now the weight of my own sin is off of me because now I've drawn attention to yours. I don't mean that at all. I mean the grace of God is working in my life. If I'm seeing it right, praise the Lord. And if I'm not, forgive me for pointing this out. But I believe that this is true. I tell you, it, it takes great humility to do that. To be on the receiving end and on the delivering end, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Does anybody have any uh, final thoughts, comments, or or questions? Um, I, I would just say maybe that um, we have to be okay. I have to be careful about um, you know. We can just say I. Uh, I recognize what the world does, mm-hmm. and that's not what I do. I condemn yeah. making up my own identity. Right. Um, I have to realize that, you know, honestly, I have to tell myself every day that I, you know, God is what I depend on, mm-hmm. where I want to be defines me. Um, yes. Because I guess that's. That whole identity thing, maybe, maybe that's so such a forefront of the issue right now because that sinful man. Mm-hmm. That's it. In essence, that's that's what sin is: is that it, it overcomes us and mm-hmm. it's, it's it's in us if we let it, mm-hmm. if we don't um, constantly seek. God, we have, you know, that's, we have to make the decision this way or that way, and not just not that way. We have to right. look to and depend on God for this stuff. And I, I think that's a helpful uh, point, Tim. We're not just saying I won't do this that the world does, and as long as I don't do that, I'm okay. We're saying that we are throwing that off as not. Correct, not a godly way, not scriptural, biblical. But we're saying we are with our whole hearts by God's grace in faith, looking at and pursuing Him. Lord, help me to see my identity and who I am in You today. Because if I don't, I'll go try to find it in something else. It is the way of my heart. So we're saying I have to do that today. Before I get up, before I swing my feet over the mattress... I have to do that because if I don't, I will be running and pursuing it the rest of the day and I will be tired when I go to sleep because all I've been doing is running and trying to find myself all day long or justify myself all day long. And you will go to bed tired every night, exhausted every night trying to do that. It is not possible. There is nothing out there to go do it and there's nothing in here to go do it either. You have to look to the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for this time this morning. I thank You for Your Word, that it is true and right and sure. And You don't give us in Your Word opinions. You tell us the truth about the reality of life and who we are before You and who You are. Lord, we confess that we are sinful people, that we have many lesser glories on our minds every day, things that we are pursuing, not just with part of our energy or part of our money, but with all of it things that do not last, broken cisterns that do not hold water. Lord, we we pray that you would heal us and make us whole by your Spirit. Lord, help us day to day, every day to get up 
and to cry out to you, Lord, help me to see that you are the sovereign God and that that's how I'll order my life today, seeing it as before you. And Lord, may that be the grace that fills our homes, that fills our tables as as we start our day in our room or out doing chores or on our way to the office. Lord, I pray that that would be on our minds this week in Jesus name. Amen.